You're listening to the Benton Heights Presbyterian Church Podcast. We hope this message brings you encouragement and helps to build your faith in Jesus. We're glad you're here to listen to this message from Pastor Paul. As we return to Esther, one of the first things we learn is this. Don't question the providence of God. Assume it. Don't question the providence of God. That is, don't question that God is sovereign and good and he knows the future and he's at work. Don't question it. Assume it. Here's how Esther chapter 6 opens. That night, the king could not sleep. So he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this, the king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. Sometimes God works through the visible hand of miracles Sometimes he works through the invisible hand of providence. That's one of the great themes of this book. As I've said before, but if you're new to this series, in the book of Esther, God's name is never uttered. No angel shows up. No prophet speaks. The question is then, well, how is God active in this story? And that's through providence we see the effects of his invisible hand. There are times that we don't see a burning bush. We don't see an angel. We don't hear an audible voice. But we see the effects of God's presence. And you got to assume that is his providence. Hmm. Wow, that happened? The Lord was behind that. That occurred? Well, that's the invisible hand of God. And so as we examine the story of Esther, you'll see God's work through the effects. That's providence. So here in this story, we have a king. In Hebrew, his name is Ahasuerus. We know him better by his Greek name, Xerxes. He is the one who has given permission for his right-hand man, Haman, to kill all of God's covenant people. That decree has already been sent out. The date has been set. And King Xerxes has a sleepless night. Since he can't sleep, he says, well, bring me all the legal accounting of my kingdom. Now, I don't know if it's because he's got work to do or he wants to find the most boring thing to put him to sleep. It's kind of like you, Paul, you know, putting in a Paul sermon. <laughs> Nevertheless, he has read to him the history of his reign. And he is reminded that some five years prior, there was an assassination plot that was uncovered where two of his guards, his secret service detail, plotted and a guy named Mordecai overheard the plot, brought it to the attention of the queen, his cousin Esther, who brought it to the attention of the king thereby saving the king's life. And the king asked, what do we ever do for that guy? Now, this is going to look like coincidence, right? That's the non-Christian word for providence. Well, that was a coincidence. We say, no, that was the Lord. 
or a phrase that I'll use a lot is, well, that was a God incidence. So here, at just the right time, when Mordecai's life is about to end, what did we ever do for that guy? The answer, nothing. If you save the king's life, you should get something. Herodotus, the Greek historian, details that there was an assassination plot against the king's brother, against Xerxes' brother. And a man found out and reported it, saving the king's brother, and he got to be a governor. So if you get to be a governor by saving the king's brother, you got to get something for saving the king, right? And all of a sudden, we see what looks like a conscience in Xerxes. We haven't seen that before. All of a sudden, his conscience appears, I should have done something for this man. We didn't do anything. And what's about to unfold is a series of events that are going to save Mordecai's life. Now, there will be, quite frankly, times for us when we will wonder, God, where are you? What are you doing? God, I don't understand. And in those moments, we need to think biblically. So instead of questioning God, we choose to say, God, I I know you're here. I know you're up to something. Help me see it. And what we see here is yet another definition of faith. Faith is trusting in the presence and providence of God before you see it. Faith is trusting in the presence and providence of God before we see it. So don't question the providence of God. Assume it. God is at work in your life. God is working everything out for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 28. God is sovereign and in control. God is good and he is present. So the king has reading given to him about an event that had happened that involved Mordecai. So now as that is being read, the king said, all right, who's in the court? He knew somebody had come in. Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace. What official is in attendance? Haman. The guy who wants to kill all of God's people, the guy who's been given the legal right by the king to carry it out, the guy who is going to murder Mordecai. Mordecai, the guy who saved the king. He see the amazing providence of God here at work. So Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace. Here's why. To speak to the king about impaling Mordecai in the pole he had set up for him. This is basically a huge pole in which they are going to crucify or impale him on 75 feet high. Haman was upset. The backstory is because Mordecai refused to bow down to him. And so this was publicly dishonoring to Haman. And part of Haman's identity, part of his idolatry is that I need all the power and glory I can get. So he gets permission to not only kill Mordecai, but to kill all of God's people. And historians say there may be as many as 15 million Jews living in the Persian Empire. And what Haman wants to do to Mordecai is to kill him in a very public and shameful way. 
He wants to crucify him. This is essentially the precursor to crucifixion. The Persians invented it. The Romans, a few centuries later, perfected it. 75 feet in the air. He wants to hang Mordecai, showing everyone, this is what happens if you dishonor me. So the king's attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, for the man the king delights to honor, let's see, here's what I would like. Have the royal robe that the king has worn, let him bring that, and, and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Haman's saying, let's have a parade for me. I mean, the one that you want to honor, O king. Go at once, he commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. Can you imagine what this guy is thinking? Do all this for the Jew Mordecai. I was going to ask if I can crucify the guy, and now I've got to organize his parade. This may be just the moment that God tells his angels, hey, you don't want to miss this. And his angel said, man, that is good right there. This is one of the most ironic chapters in the entire Bible. This is unbelievable. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city street, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Probably exactly that way. And I think this is a great segue to talk about pride. And what we see here for Haman is that he's really not unlike us. We may make fun of Haman and his arrogance, and we should, but we should also make fun of ourselves. The truth is, as we read this story, how many of us, given the opportunity, would respond similarly, maybe exactly like Haman? Yeah, I can see myself rich and powerful, do what I want. Somebody dishonors me. I make their life miserable. Yeah, I would do that. I could have a parade named after me, a holiday, and man, I'd show up. We have to see Haman like this so that we can learn from his negative example. So let me tell you some things about pride and humility. And before you start wondering, well, what qualifies him to talk about this subject? Because you can't out-humble me. Some of you got that. Thank you. Three things. Number one, 
Humility means know your place. The root word for humility literally means know your place. The problem with Haman is he doesn't know his place. He's the guy who always wants to advance one more level in the organization, not because he's the best guy for the job, but because there's more honor there. So he's positioned himself as the right-hand man of the king, second in command of all of the Persian empire. And you know what he wants? More glory. Are we like that? We don't know our place or won't accept our place. Being in an organization is not okay. We've got to be at the top. Seeing others succeed, that's not enough. We have to be the one who succeeds. That's Haman's problem. He doesn't know his place. And what he's asking for is amazing. I want to wear the king's robe. I want to ride the king's horse. The only thing he doesn't ask is for the king's wife. Other than that, he wants to be as high, as exalted, as rich, as powerful as possible. Number two, everyone is proud just in different ways. Some of us want money. Some of us want comfort. Some of us want power or an audience or we want to be close to authority and leadership We're all proud in different ways. And when we judge and condemn others for their pride, we also have to look at ourselves and say, well, where's their pride in my heart? We're all proud just in different ways. And number three, pride is about my glory. Humility is about God's glory. What that means is once you decide who gets the glory, That makes 99% of the decisions in your life. Will I do this or that? Well, what will bring most glory to God? The question of who gets the glory, it clarifies most things. If Haman were to ask that, you see, what Haman asks is, what will bring me the most glory? You draw a different conclusion with that question Then with the question, well, what brings God the most glory? You're fighting with your spouse. You say, well, what should I do? What is it that brings God most glory? You're disobeying your parents. What should you do? What is it that brings God most glory? You're disagreeing with leadership. How do you conduct yourself in a way that brings God the most glory? You have aspirations. You say, should I pursue this or not? Well, what is it that's going to bring the most glory to God? Not only what I do, but why I do it, how I do it, when I do it, it all goes through the question of where's the glory going? Mordecai, Mordecai has not been a great adoptive dad to Esther. He's not been a great believer. He hasn't made his faith public until just recently. There's a lot we could criticize in the character of Mordecai But here's what we do see, humility. Remember, he overhears the assassination plot for the king. His king is of a different race. He's a pagan, different religion, different people group. He could have just let it go and not said anything. But you know what? This is also a book 
about how to be a missionary in a non-believing culture. We're all supposed to, by the grace of God, be like Mordecai. We live in a non-Christian culture. Oftentimes, our leaders, our elected officials, our bosses, our professors, they are not believers. They don't know and love the God of the Bible. Here's what Mordecai does. He does the right thing for a pagan king. And he seeks the well-being of the entire culture, not just himself. That's the heart of a missionary. It's the same heart that we are to have. Whether you are in business or finance or education or real estate, it doesn't matter. Wherever the place that God has you in his world, it needs to be you doing the right thing, bringing hope and life. No one else is going to do this. No other religion is going to do this. And Mordecai is humble about that. He brings information to the king that saves the king's life, and he receives nothing. And Mordecai doesn't rant. He doesn't protest. He doesn't declare war. For five years, he just goes to work. When it says that he's at the city gate, that's his office. That's where his business is conducted. It's been five years since he saved the king's life, and all of a sudden, he has this really weird day. Mordecai is at work. And who shows up? Haman. You've got to be kidding me. This is going to be a terrible day. Call security. (laughs) I've heard that this guy has a 75-foot impaling pole ready. Haman, why are you here? I'm here. (laughs) I'm here for your parade. The parade happens. What does Mordecai do after the parade? Next verse. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate. He goes back to his job. (laughs) That had to be weird. Can you imagine his coworkers in the next cubicle? Hey, how was the parade? It was okay. Well, what happens now? I don't know. I guess I'm just going back to work. He goes back to work. He doesn't ask for anything. He's got the posture of this humble servant, like, I just did what anybody should have done. I did the right thing to save the king's life. You know, sometimes we wonder, how can I make a difference for God? The answer, just do the right thing. So here's the question. What is it that Haman's going to do? Let's say that you're Haman. What do you do? Next verse. But Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Now, here's what's weird. Haman has a better marriage than King Xerxes. Esther previously announced that she hasn't even seen the king for 30 days, and they live in the same palace. This just shows it's possible to be a really proud, ruthless, horrible man who's got a decent marriage. He goes and talks to his wife, something the king never does. Do you see where perhaps in his own heart he'd say, well, I'm not a horrible man. I'm a good family man. You know, I, I, I care for my wife. I'm good to her. I, I've got good friends around me. This is how... 
proud people justify their inconsistency. He seems to have a decent marriage. He's got friends, and he wants to be a mass murderer. His advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, and now she has a bit of a prophecy here. She's not one of God's people, but she articulates what is to come. Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin. What kind of people is he? He is God's people. He is one of God's covenant people. Therefore, Haman, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. She says, you will not prevail. You know why? Because their dad is coming. He's going to find them. He's going to look after them. He's going to protect them. Haman, you're a dead man. Now, there's a theme and a thread that runs throughout Scripture that's underneath this story of Esther. And it goes back to God's covenant people. Way back in Genesis chapter 12, as God relates to a man named Abraham, and God says, I'm going to bring forth a people, and I'm going to covenant with them to be their God. And through them, through that family line, will come a Savior. And so there has been attempt, generation after generation, it seems, to destroy God's people so that a Savior couldn't come. But we already know how this story played out. History rolls on. Jesus comes. Jesus is our king. Let me read for you from Philippians chapter 2. The king, Jesus, and when he returns. Paul writes to the Philippians, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility. Value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being born in human likeness. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every Knees shall bow. See, he gets the glory. In heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue should acknowledge that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. We hope you enjoyed the message. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, our website, bhprez.org, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to stay up to date on all our latest content.